where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Let's jump into 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when you become a man of God, or a woman of God, okay, but it means the same thing, is that you are now given everything that you need to be successful in life as far as God is concerned. That does not mean that your job is always going to work out, that the stock market's always going to rise, the crops are always going to be good. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that God has given us everything that we need to be a successful, born-again believer, an ambassador for Christ in life. If I were to ask you for a list of things that God has not given us, he's asked us to do something that he's not equipped us with, what would your answer be? And most of us would say nothing, right? Because he's clearly said and clearly defined that, yes, I've given you everything that you need. Yet, we walk around defeated. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Is it just me? Like, I've never seen the church in a more fearful place in all my life. I've grown up in the church, you know, I remember the 80s when things were kind of weird. There was some weird stuff that went on in the 80s, right? I mean, not just the heritage, although they're coming back. <laughs> Whoever thought the mullet would be back? Of all things, the only thing I'm asking for is the bowl cut. I want the bowl cut back. I lived through that time. I had it. I had a cool where you shaved up underneath and your hair flopped on top. You guys, some y'all remember that? All right. Listen, the mullet can come back. Anything is possible, all right? But here's the thing. is I remember those times in there, and the church was not weak. It was very strong, almost arrogant. And a little lost. There are a lot of good things that came out of that time frame. There was a lot of weird things that came out of that time frame. Where they would take passages of scripture and isolate them. And they would talk about doing spiritual warfare up in the heavenly places against the principalities and powers. And all of this stuff. So what would they do? They would go and rent skyscraper, rent a floor, and they would do spiritual battle. They'd get on airplanes and go up in these high places. That way they could do spiritual battle. Their heart was in the right place. Maybe their interpretation wasn't. It never said you had to take the battle up there. It just talked about what you're dealing with. But yet, they were strong. They were mighty. They were trying to do something. And then you go into the 90s and the years of revival that took place out of the mid to late 90s. It was incredible. There was a time of the Spirit of God pouring out on the church like I had never seen before and really haven't seen since. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but we just haven't seen it again in that way. It was all across the world, specifically in the United States. It started uh, up in Canada a little bit, then it trickled down to Florida, and then it kind of hit the whole nation, even here in Missouri. The Smithton Revival. If you're not familiar with Smithton, Missouri, look that up. It was incredible. Thousands of people walking into a town of, what is it, 500 people down there? You went down to it. 500 people, a little Assembly of God church, like it looks like an old little Assembly of God church. People flocking from all over the world to come into a service like that. Why? Because God was moving there in a mighty way. There were things that were happening. Then you fast forward to today, and crisis hits America for the first time that we've seen in a long time. Basically, you had 9-11. What happened on 9-11? Man, people turned their attention to God. Because America got attacked. I remember being a youngster watching bombs go off, and, you know, all the Kuwait stuff and the Iraqi wars and stuff, thinking, you know, this stuff never happened in America. I wasn't there for Pearl Harbor, so I'd never seen an attack on America. So to me, it was just history. Book. But when you see it for yourself, you're like, oh my goodness, this can't happen here. But the church rose up for a short time. Got very, very attentive of what they were doing because people were looking for answers. People were hurting. Fast forward to today, what happens? Crisis hits America. And what does the church do? Shuts its doors. It turns its attention inward. Oh, we got to be careful. we got to be safe. Listen, I'm not saying being foolish. I'm saying we stand on God's word. 
And every time of crisis throughout the history of America and the history of the world, the church has been the place where you turn to for answers. Why? Because the body of Christ has been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything we need is there. The question is, are we going to pick up the tools to use them? That's what it comes down to. Are we going to utilize what we have to us? Let me give you an example of this. There's a guy named Brian Shaw. You ever heard of him? World's strongest man. We have a lot in common. Brian. He's like six foot nine, four hundred and fifty pounds, I think. We don't have that in common, FYI. I'm obviously not six foot nine. So the thing is, is that recently that he pulled up on a car wreck. A woman was trapped inside the car. I say recently, within the last few months. And what does the world's strongest man do? He basically manhandles the car, rips the door off, pulls the woman out. Now, he's equipped to do it. Imagine, if you will, if he stood there and watched. Boy, I wish I had something to get that door open. He had everything he needed. I mean, the dude, he like deadlifts over a thousand some pounds. I don't know if you know this, that's a lot. Okay? When you get up that heavy, you get attracted. Not right. Picks it up. He used the ability that he had within him in a moment that it was needed. Where the church today, equipped with everything, found out we're not prepared. We're not prepared. We're not, we're not where we need to be in our level of faith and our level of trusting God. We come near him with our mouth, but our hearts are not there. We haven't, we're not fully persuaded. If we were, we act differently. We respond differently in times of crisis. It's no different. If you truly believe that God is the one that meets all of your needs, then a financial crisis in the country where things are shut down and stuff like that will have no effect on you emotionally because your trust is over here in God. You guys following me? That's the thing. We have to stay on this. We have to be moved by what we know, not by what we see, what we hear, and what we feel. If you're moved by emotion, you will be all over the place. You will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes out. Wind of doctrine does not mean a spiritual one necessarily. It can be anything you hear. We've got to be moved by facts. We have to be moved by what we know in, in God's Word. So when we come to this and how we're moving forward in this, we're looking at the, we've been looking at the idea of prophecy. And we talked about how we know what prophecy is and what it is. And we talked about false prophets, all of that kind of stuff. Here's what we know. 1 Corinthians 14 says, in verse 1 says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God no one understands. And however, the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now we've hung on those three words, edification, exhortation, and comfort. And I gave you these definitions here. And what they are not, all right, is you're trusting in the one giving the word. You're trusting in the source. Because there are prophecies that come out that aren't really all that feel good. They don't necessarily edify. But you're edified in the fact that you know that God keeps his word, keeps his promise, no matter what, no matter what we see, no matter the time frame that passes, God is going to keep his word. You know how you know that you believe that? Because all of us in here probably, I will say exclusively, are very confident that when we die, we will be in heaven with God. We have accepted that as true. What evidence do you have? Nothing. What have you had a near-death experience? Well, one of us did in the back. The rest of us, nothing. So what are we basing that belief on? 
Well, who would have thought? Yep. The promise in God's word. We're sitting around waiting on the rapture to take place that Jesus is going to return. Based on what? He ain't showed up yet. Every generation thinks they're the generation. I bet you think that. I bet the one that comes after it will think it too. But what are we basing that on? God's promises. God's word. So we believe in those things, but the thing that separates a believing, charismatic church from all other is the idea of healing. Because that you are faced with in the symptoms and the things that are going on. And because you're faced with it every day, you realize where your faith is on your response to it. If you were given a cancer diagnosis, immediately do you get fretful? Do you get fearful? You shouldn't. Number one, no matter what happens, you're going to be with God. Number two, there is a promise in his word. And we are getting to that. But we're laying a foundation of why we trust the promises of God and how he does it. Now, I read this last week and the week before. I'm going to read it again. I believe that God keeps his promises. I believe that those promises are clearly laid out in his word. I believe that God still heals today, and I believe it's God's will to heal everyone. I believe that it's God's will to heal everyone was ratified on the cross, and I think God guaranteed his will in healing through the atonement. I believe that sickness is a result of sin because death is a result of sin. I believe sickness is nothing more than slow death. I believe that sickness is nothing more than an attack from the enemy. I believe that the church today has accepted sickness as a societal norm. I believe the church today has lost the foundation of God's promises. I believe the church today no longer believe the words of God. And I believe the church today is good at making excuses when things don't happen the way that they think they should. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but the bottom line is this. This is where we are. We have to recognize it. You see, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, here's the question. Is that verse true? You see, you got to understand what's going on in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus being a greater high priest than that of the line of Aaron, he comes from the order of Melchizedek, and the work that he had done, being the great atoner and the great atonement, and the blood sacrifice for both man and all time was done in that moment. There is no more work. That was a promise that was given when? When was that promise given? It was given in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. Now, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, I went through this in, in depth. But the bottom line is this. There was the promise of one that was coming that would take on the enemy. That one ultimately referring to Jesus. That was what was promised. When um, Seth was born, she's like, oh, you've given me one, a one that will come and the one that will go. It was the promise, the one that was going to get. She thought this was going to happen. Any moment now, God is going to take care of the situation. And yet it's thousands of years later. Thousands. Thousands. Not hundreds. Thousands. Okay? That's a lot. I don't know about you. Okay, maybe it's just me. You tell me if this is you as well. I am not opposed to eating a frozen dinner. Okay? They're quick, they're handy, sometimes they taste good. I found something that I really like. You know what I don't like? The five minutes it takes to microwave. It's ridiculous. I mean, where are we as a society that we can't get this done in less time? Nothing aggravates me more than when I walk away from the microwave and I feel like the five minutes should be up and I get back in there and there's three and a half left. <laughs> This happened last night. I mean, what is the deal? Look how impatient we are. Okay? You know what else I hate? Commercials. Why they gotta be so long? 
We don't have cable. We have the Hulu thing, uh, whatever that is. You know what they, they stop you from being able to do? Fast forward the commercials. Figured out a way to get you. So we are not patient. And imagine a promise given, as we talked about this idea of progressive revelation. They know it's coming. When is it coming? And there's all these weird steps along the way that have nothing, seemingly nothing, to do with getting to Messiah. I mean, why didn't you just send him right away? Do us all a favor. This is it. No worries. But he didn't. Which brings us to what we're talking about today. You see, in order to understand prophecy and the promises of God, we have to look at traditions. Because we got good ones and we got bad ones. Right? We all have traditions. This time of year, it is very traditional. I mean, you all think about the things that go on. Here are some pictures of some stuff that, you know, perhaps this is what your house looks like. Or you attempted to make your house look like this, okay? You know, you've got the stockings, the fireplace, and you get to the cookies. Now, this is obviously from Pinterest. Now, if you try to do this, what does it look like? A big glob of goo on top of cookies, right? I mean, if you can pull this off, gay for you. But I mean, these are things that happen. Do you remember baking with grandma or the things that you did traditionally? How about this one? Singing carols. Now, some of you should do this, and some of you should watch. Okay? <laughs> but that's some of it. But maybe this is a tradition for your family, or you go with the group. Here's another one. Who brought that monster in? <laughs> Who came up with that idea? That's awful. Why make so much work on yourself? But now it has become a tradition. I think they came up with a Jewish one, too, I think I saw. I can't remember what it was called, but... That's kind of funny. Hey, how about this one? Movies. Did you know that It's a Wonderful Life was a box uh, office flop? And the only reason it's become a hit is because they didn't charge anything to pay on cable TV, so it just showed every year because it was free. And then people started watching it and liking it and things like that. I mean, these are all really, really good traditions. These are things. Maybe it's the movies. You think about the old claymation stuff and the old Rudolphs and the old Frosties. And all. I mean, you think about it. It brings back memories. It brings back excitement. These are not bad traditions at all. But in the church, we have bad traditions, right? Here's one. Now, I hope this doesn't offend anybody. Well, I say that. I really don't care if it does. Because it's not so much what the act is. It's what it implies. Because this tradition here tells you that in that moment, that child is now right with God, and at any moment of death from any time forward, if that child dies, it will be with God. Be 47 years old and an axe murder. Doesn't matter. They were baptized. And Janet was telling us a story about a lady who uh, her husband had died, and they were frantically looking for his papal baptism certificate. That way that they would have peace that he was with God. That is not scripturally accurate. There is nothing right about that. But this tradition will do what? It will lead you astray. It will make you think, okay, I must be right with God because. Here's another tradition we have in the church that's pretty bad. Now this, what is wrong with this? This is the kind of pictures we see all year long. Here's the problem. When you're held up on your traditions, You'll miss what Scripture is saying. And what happens when you miss what Scripture is truly saying is you're expecting God to perform in this way when really He's going to perform in this way. When you expect God to move over here, even though it's contrary to what He has said and contrary to Scripture, but you just really think this is what's going to happen, when He doesn't act that way, you'll come to a certain conclusion. God doesn't keep His promises. It's not His will. Or maybe He doesn't exist. 
I dealt with somebody I worked with a long time ago whose mother had died of cancer. They were avid Lutherans, nothing wrong with Lutherans. They were avid Lutherans, gone to church all of his life, and his mom got cancer. And he really was believing God that God would heal her. He's praying, God, please, please, if it's your will, please heal her. And nothing happened. She ended up dying to this day in the 80s. He doesn't believe in God because he's, why would you not heal my husband? So what happens. He had an expectation of God. God did not meet that expectation. Here's the thing. We have to be moved on the character of God. Okay? It's no different than if I took Jared as an example. Okay? Jared's in the back. We've all seen Jared. Jared, pretty good guy. He's got some funny stories. He likes to eat ice cream. Okay? So he's thinking last minute gifts. Ice cream's the way to go. But if Jared rolls up on a burning vehicle with a woman trapped inside, there's no doubt in my mind that Jared would do everything in his power to get that woman out. But if you expect Jared to manhandle a car door and rip it off its hinges, it ain't gonna happen. Now, me, maybe, but not Jared. Right? The thing is, is that we have an expectation of people when they don't meet our expectation, we're disappointed, but maybe they were never able to meet that expectation. We have an expectation of God based off of things that we have grown up believing or things that we've experienced or whatever that case may be. But maybe we've never asked the right question. Is that truly who God is? So when we begin to look at prophecy, think about this. We've got to look at what is going on. Because this moment, can we go back to that picture real quick? This moment is one of the greatest moments in the history of mankind. And yet, we have so much of this wrong because of our traditions. And the thing is, is when you see what actually happened, it's even more powerful because this picture undermines the reality of what was going on. So we have to begin to look at this. So what is the tradition? Well, basically, it goes something like this. Angel appears to Mary. Guess what, Mary? You're going to give birth to the Messiah. She's like, wait a minute. Why me? Why are you choosing me? No, you're going to do it. But I've never been with men. Oh, don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit's got this. He's going, he's going to take care of it. So Joseph keeps her, and guess what? Nine months pass. She's about to pop. She's got to go into Jerusalem because there's a census. And so on her way there, she's just about to give birth. They're scrambling around, trying to find a place to stay, but everything is booked solid. There's nowhere for them to go. Motel 6 did not keep the light on for them. There's nothing left. So they got to run out to a bar, and she gives birth to Jesus. And in the meantime of this happening, the shepherds are standing out in their field, and the angel appears to them and says, Listen, Messiah is born. Go and see him. So they head out. At the same time, the three wives become, and the three wives become, and they bring gifts, and everything is peachy. Except the majority of that is completely inaccurate. Why do we believe it? Primarily through tradition and songs. So now let's look at this from a scriptural standpoint. Let's look at the promises that God has given. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Peace, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is the us? Ooh. Who's the us? Israel. Right? Who is the promise of Messiah? Israel. Coming through them. Who is us? It is Israel. Why? It's their Messiah. Now, ultimately, it's for all of mankind. No question about that. That's clearly laid out in the Old Testament. But the bottom line is this. This is Israel. Now, 
A child is given as a reference to Jesus. We get that. But remember what I told you is that the reason that they were so confused about the death and resurrection of Jesus is because they thought he was going to come and set up his kingdom. He was going to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. Why did they believe this? Because the government would be upon his shoulders. That's why they believed it. Now, when was this prophecy given? It was given about 800 years before Jesus was born. No reason to get in a rush. 800 years. Imagine, if you will, you're around at the time of Isaiah. And Isaiah gives this prophecy. Hey, in the science, this is what it's going to be called. This is what you're going to do and all this other stuff. And you're sitting there like, are you ever going to do it, God? I mean, what are you waiting on? 800 years before Christ was born. Now let's look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are of old from everlasting. So now we see where he's going to come from. He's coming from Bethlehem. Why does that matter? Because, as I said last week, is that you don't control where you're born. You don't control that. It's interesting that he's beginning to lay the pieces. It's as if he's setting up a chessboard. You ever play chess with somebody who's really good at chess? Okay, that would not be me, FYI. But they're thinking about 12 or 13 moves ahead, which blows my mind. And they're strategically moving stuff. And the one thing I found, I played a couple of guys that are really, really good at chess, is they set sucker pieces out to get your attention. So they're doing something over here, and it's got your focus, but really the move's over here. And guess what? I fell for it every time. I'm terrible at chess. So it's like God is setting up these pieces, but he's telling us out that from the nation of Israel, is coming forth the Messiah, who will be born in Bethlehem. Now this is crucial because we begin to see this unfold. You see it later on, but we're looking at the narrative of the Christmas story. So let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this one. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of the kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Hop in his feet, since I do not know a man. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month of her, who is called barren, for with God nothing is impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Now, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of what we just read. Those other two prophecies. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. It's now being announced. Now there's a clock that has started officially that man can't track. Do you think Isaiah thought it was going to be 800 years later? I doubt it. I don't know that for sure. We'll ask him one of these days, but I, I highly doubt it. But as she's sitting there, she's troubled at his saying, considering what the manner of the greeting was. She's perplexed by this. Wait a minute. Because her entire life, I guarantee you, because they understand that they went to the synagogue, and that the Torah was read in the synagogue, and the prophets were read, and there was all these things going on. They knew that at one point there will be a virgin, and she will give birth to a son, that son being Messiah, his name will be called Emmanuel, but she did not think it was her. In fact, no woman probably thought it was then. 
And here she is. That she's got to do something with this. And her response is so good. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, there are two miracles that are going on here. And we often overlook the other. The other one is the fact that her uh, that Elizabeth is also pregnant, past the time and the age in which she could give birth, and yet here she is, because with God, nothing is impossible. In other words, there is no physical precept that will keep God from moving in the way in which he chooses. Fair enough? So he is laying up this foundation, and now we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It said, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. So what is happening here? The creed goes out from Caesar Augustus. He says, now, get in here, you got to get registered. What they do, they got to go back to their hometown, where they are from. This takes place while Quirinius is there. So, Caesar Augustus, this was the nephew, the grand nephew, of Julius Caesar. I think i got a picture of him. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's got a tail. He's got a son. But he ruled from 16 B.C. to 1480. So why are they laying these things out? He's God is showing us a time frame on which this took place. They think that Jesus was born around 4 BC, but basically this is giving us a point of reference. Now, so what we see here is he's getting up, he's moving, because they all have to. We see the story that it went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, be thrown wife. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for him to be delivered, or for her to be delivered, and sure. Uh, her, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped in a swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So there's a couple of things. Number one, why is Bethlehem called the city of David? We have to begin to unpack these things, all right? So we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? So he's now transitioning Saul out of power. Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now we understand why it's Bethlehem, it's the city of David. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And we know how that story went. He goes to Bethlehem, all the sons are brought forth, and they all look the part, they look like a king, but none of those were the man of God. And he says, well, do you have any other sons left? He's like, well, I have this one. I'm going to Name's David. Great. Where's he at? What's he doing? He's keeping the sheep. And keep that in mind for a minute. That's important. Now, we go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Came to pass in those, uh, those days that a decree went out to see the best of all the world should be registered since it took place. While Quirinius was governing Syria, so all were registered, everyone to his own city. Now watch carefully, verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So now, we know why he went to Bethlehem. Because that is his lineage, he's of the lineage of David. David was the home of, or I mean, Bethlehem was the home of David. 
Okay, you guys get that? That's important. Now you understand why this is taking place. Now remember, this was prophesied in Micah hundreds of years before this moment. He's to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. When it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Not scrambling around because she's getting ready to give birth, but while they were there. How long were they in Bethlehem? We don't know. But it very likely was a good while. Because if you've ever traveled with a pregnant woman, you try not to do it when it's close to the time. They're a little more irritable. There's a lot more bathroom breaks. Right? Get where you need to go. I have a friend of mine that's getting ready to pastor a church in Ohio. He's moving from Washington. His wife is pregnant and due in February. When are they leaving? Next week. He's like, I don't want to be traveling anywhere with that crazy woman. That's what he said. That's a good person. During that time. So, does it say anything about them scrambling around? Does it say anything about that? No. All it says is that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Where do we get this idea? It comes from the part after that. She, there was no room for them in the end. She had to wrap them in swaddling cloths and put them in a manger. That's where we get this idea, that they're scrambling around. But are we putting that into Scripture, or is Scripture clearly telling us that? We are reading that into it. Why? Because of traditions. There's no scramble. There's no running around. It's the word in that throws us off. Because there are two different uses of the word in. The first one is this Greek word, okay? Pandoshion. You can pronounce it better, I'll give you a mic. We see this used in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan, verse 33. A certain Samaritan as a journey came where, was, where he was, and when he saw him, he had uh, compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And what did he bring him? Basically a hotel. That's the word inn. We think of that. We think of Motel 6, Holiday Inn, perhaps the Marriott. Maybe you sleep in better stuff than I do when you travel. But the bottom line is this. This is what we think of when we hear the word inn. It's some place in which you go, you're booking a room. We know why they wouldn't be able to find a room because everybody's coming back to their hometown, so the place is going to be booked solid. It makes sense. Doggone it, he should have used Expedia. The problem is, is the word in doesn't always mean the word in. And this is where we get confused. Because another use of the word in, a completely different room, is this one. Catalina. Catalina. This is not a reference to a motel room. This is a reference to a guest room. Let me show you this. Luke chapter 22, verse 11. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's the same word that is translated in Luke chapter 2 as the word in. It's a reference to a guest room. Okay? What does that mean? Well, let me show you this picture. This is what a house would look like, at least to some degree. If it's multi-level, as you came in, there would be a place. They always had a courtyard. Then they have the downstairs part where they would do their work. They would bring the animals in at night because they wanted them to run off with somebody to steal them. And they would have the kitchen, all that kind of stuff. And then the upper room would be where the people stayed. That's where they would sleep and whatnot. And then you could go up on the roofs. Most of those, you have rooftop, uh, balcony-type things where you can go up and you live. So when you talk about like Peter in, in the book of Acts where he's up on the roof praying, that was very common. They would go up there. Why? Because they didn't have a lot of room. And you look for some privacy. Now, what happens underneath a Jewish tradition of how they took care of their people is that as family was coming back into the area, where do you think they stayed? 
they stayed with you. And so they would have all the current living family members coming back to Bethlehem to crash in this place. And they would all stay. Is this thing work? Let me just find out. They'd stay in that upper room. All of them. They were wide open. They were, I mean, they could have had 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, depending on the amount of people. They all had to come back. They would crash there. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. It's time to give birth. Do you want an audience? No, you don't. If you do, you need Jesus. You see, there was no room for them up there. So some will speculate, okay, then it probably went down to the downstairs part. Because where would the manger be? Well, it would be down there with the animals. That's what it is. It's a trough. It's a feeding trough. Some will say that they went to a cave or to a different barn or something like that. But where do we get those ideas? Strictly tradition. Because nothing that we have read thus far has given us any, any indication of this. What I'm telling you is the word inn does not mean motel. It literally means there was no room for the dead and the guest room. This is what it looked like. So how do we begin to put these pieces together? Well, we've got to look at the next part. That comes with the shepherds. Because this gives us a clue to what was really going on. So, so far, you guys can see, I hope, I'm hoping I'm expressing this clearly, is that the idea of her scrambling around, trying to find a place to stay because she's about to give birth, is complete nonsense. We only believe it because we've been taught. And we've seen Christmas girls that had that in them. So let's look at the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. What's the same country? We're in Bethlehem. Right? We're in that vicinity. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and honor of peace, goodwill towards men. So, they're in the same country, which is, as I said, Bethlehem. They're in the area, but they're keeping watch over their flocks. Now, if you know anything about the industry over there, how they, they sheep and all of that kind of stuff, they don't typically have them out in the month of December. It's a little cold. So, that is part of the reason that we don't think that uh, Jesus would have been born during the month of December, likely during the Feast of Sukkot. There are some arguments on that. But the other question here is, what we know is this. Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. What are those? Well, the speculation is, is that at any time a Jewish person or any person during this time, you know, it was tough. When you traveled that far and they had to go everything on foot or on animal, there were a lot of people out there that were killed. And there was also times that you would just get sick and you would die. And so they would carry with them burial cloths. And they were strips of cloths, think of a mummy. And they would wrap the person up and they would bury them right wherever they happened to die because you're not going to drag the body with you. And so that would be why she would have those. And that is what she wrapped Jesus up with because they would carry those with them at all times. So that must be where they got them. That is the theory that goes behind it. The problem is it doesn't make any sense. Because remember, they weren't scrambling around. She was prepared. It does not say uh, death clothes. It says swaddling cloths. You guys ever swaddled a baby? Do they like it? They do. Some of you as adults may still like it. I don't know. So, they weren't scrambling around. There was nothing going on. And here's the question that comes to me. Why did God appear to shepherds? Then he said, I'm giving you a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, 
in lying in a manger. You know what he didn't tell them? Where you will find that baby. He didn't say that. All he said, this is the son. So we've got a problem. We don't know why these shepherds, why shepherds at all, and anything like that. So let's look at uh, verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they heard and seen as it was told them. So, as soon as they hear this, what did they say? Let's go to Bethlehem. Okay? But where? He doesn't give them an address. So we've got two problems. He's appearing to shepherds. Why? Oh, they're lowly. You know the song? Hear the lowly shepherds. And that's God saying that this message isn't for just the higher road. This is for everybody. That sounds good. That really preaches well. That's not what's happening. Why Bethlehem? And then he never told them where to go. How on earth do they find it? They go around knocking on doors. Then they do what the wise men did. They say, hey, where's this, this king of the Jews? It doesn't say anything about that. So how on earth did they find it? Well, here's the thing that you have to understand. These were not ordinary shepherds. Because ordinary shepherds would keep their sheep and they would raise them and whatever else. But where were they? They were in Bethlehem. These were temple shepherds. And their sole responsibility was to raise lambs and sheep that would be used for temple sacrifice at Passover. That these lambs would be born, they were to keep them safe, and they would raise these things, and at the temple, every year at Passover, they would sell these lambs. These were the Passover lambs sold to the families. Now that's interesting when we get to look at the idea of progressive revelation. Oh, that's their job. So were these lowly shepherds? No, that was typically true of shepherds. But these were Levites. It was a special group of Levites that were service, and they chose them for this very purpose. Every Levite had a role inside of the temple service, and they would rotate every two weeks, or they would have two-week shifts where they would do something as their lot was drawn. Now, here's what is interesting. Again, we know that they're temple shepherds, so how did they know where to find him? Well, that is because there is a prophecy that is given in the book of Micah. I want to introduce you to a word called Migdal Eder. Migdal means tower, and Eder means flock. We see this spelled out in Micah chapter 4, verse 8. It says, you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. It's right after this prophecy about Messiah, that he will be born in Bethlehem. That's chapter 5. Same context. What is the tower of the flock? This is the place where they would raise these lambs as they were giving birth inside of this. What does that look like? Let me show you a picture. This is an example of a migdal. Migdal meaning tower. They're all over the area. Oftentimes that they would be built on the mouths of caves or something like that so that they would have room for them. But if you go to the next picture, this here is still there, and you can kind of see it's a little blurry. It says, uh, ruins of the Migdal Eater, 2000 BC, Tower of the Flock, still in the Patriarch Jacob. Gives you an example. They believe that this was the actual Migdal Eater, the Tower of the Flock, spoken of in Micah chapter 5. And here's what would happen. They would build these things, 
And inside it, you would find all of these babies. They were made of stone. Go to the next picture. They look something like that. There's a baby in it. And they would have tons of these things. And because what would happen is they're feeding these lambs and these sheep inside of these as they were birthing. And inside of it was always a sacrificial lamb. But what do we know about the Passover lamb? Is it can't just be any lamb. When that lamb is born, it has to be spotless and without blemish. It's going to have no broken bones whatsoever. So here's what happens. When these lambs are born, they thrash their feet around. They're kind of crazy. They're wild. So what these uh, Levites would do is they would take them and they would wrap them in swaddling cloths. And then they would lie them in these stone mangers until they calmed down. And then they would let them go. Because if they get bruised, they can't, they don't count as a sacrificial lamb. Now, isn't that interesting? When you begin to look at this, because what did she do with Jesus? She wasn't scrambling around. It was all calculated. As soon as he was born, she wrapped him in a swallowing cloth and laid him in a manger. And the shepherds knew exactly where to find him. Why? It's because of what John said. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Passover sacrifice had been born. Their job was to protect that very sacrifice. You guys see how powerful it is when we get away from our traditions a little bit. We begin to look at Scripture for what it is. Look at the detail that God has used to bring forth Jesus. Remember what I said. Prophecy isn't just prediction and fulfillment. It's a series of patterns. Why these shepherds? How do they know? Why swaddling cloths? Why a manger? Does that make sense? You guys see that? This is just the beginning. Because next week we're going to address the wise men. But why am I showing you? I am showing you the precision of Scripture. Because until we accept this, as every promise is true, because God has said, how can we accept it for anything in our lives? How can we stand on his word for any promise he has given if we don't see the precision in it? And what happens too often is we read things. We're like, oh, I don't know what that means, I don't know what that means, I don't know what that means. And we miss out on the nuances. You see, this thing has been held together by God, put together by God. It's got the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire thing. And this is just a picture of those things. And just we're just getting started. Next week, I'm going to show you exactly how God laid this whole thing out thousands of years in advance. It's amazing when you begin to see it. Do you guys see this? you see how powerful God's Word is? And do you see how quickly our traditions can get in the way? How they can stop us from seeing what all was really going on. Think about that. Every time you sing those Christmas carols on the radio right now, they won't stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true, Lord. We thank you that we can lean on it, depend on it. We know that every promise in there is given to us, Lord, that we can count on it with 100% certainty, Lord. And we know that you have laid everything out for us in advance so that we know beyond a shadow of doubt that every promise is there for us, Lord. And we thank you for that. We thank you for what you've done and continue to do, Lord. I thank you as we continue to go on, as we continue to work through this, as we continue to dig into your word, that you continue to reveal it to us, Lord, in a way that we can understand it to our lives, Lord, that you'd be glorified in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you Thursday. Not Wednesday. Thursday. Okay.